So even when I'm creating horrible homicidal maniacs, um, they're the people I like. And they're the people I want the audience to like. As long as they're cool, the audience will let them get away with, well, they'll let them get away with murder because they're cool. Because when you're cool, you can get away with anything. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Rob Zombie came to fame in the early 90s as the leader of the industrial noise-turned-metal band White Zombie. By the end of the century, he was writing and directing his first feature, the shocking and stylish House of a Thousand Corpses. Rob now has seven feature films to his credit, including The Devil's Rejects, his remakes of Halloween and Halloween 2, and his latest, Three from Hell, and he's still touring and making music. In this interview, conducted by History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga, Rob talks candidly about the ups and downs of making those films, the surreal violence of New York in the 80s, his love for pre-code horror, the problem with computer-generated special effects, and much, much more. It's a relaxed and honest talk with an uncompromising filmmaker who never gives up, no matter how many obstacles stand in his way. So I've listened to a couple of your commentary tracks, and there's a singular spirit of misery about the what you talk about making your films. Right. <laughs> I've never listened back to any of my commentary, so I don't know what I say. I watch the movie once, live, talk, and then stop. I always liked commentary tracks, but my favorites were always John Carpenter's, because he would tell the story. Like, he would really tell you things. Whereas a lot of people just, like, they make it sound fun, or there's no information, but John would, there would always be things like, and here's where the director is smoking too close to the camera, and you see that waft of smoke go by. I love stuff like that. So getting into features, so how long have you wanted to do that? How long did you set your sights, you know, first on music or filmmaking or both? Well, I always wanted to make movies, but it seemed impossible. You know, just where I was living and, you know, just some dopey kid living in Massachusetts making movies seemed like not going to happen. That's like what the special people in Hollywood do. And it, so same, same thing seemed the same thing with music. Seemed exactly the same. Like those are special people in those bands, or, you know, from another planet. But like everything started with punk rock. You know, once punk rock came around, I discovered that. You're like, wow, any idiot can do this. So you just start doing stuff. You start a band. You start doing stuff. And bands led to making music videos, led to somehow. I still am a little vague on how my first movie ever got made. I got to be honest. How I ended up at Universal. 
with seemingly everything at my fingertips. I don't know how it happened, and I didn't appreciate it at the time. <laughs> That's for sure. Tell me about your first film, House of a Thousand Corpses. Well, House of a Thousand Corpses, like I said, was, uh, I st- was shot at Universal Studios. Actually shot on the lot. And I don't know how it came to be exactly, because I remember I had worked at Universal Studios on one of the Halloween Horror Nights. They had done a maze based on my album that came out in 1998. So I kind of got to meet people in the theme park division, was hanging around. And once I got on the lot, I was like, I'm going to start weaseling my way into people's offices and just trying to make things happen. I remember I was in the animation department one time, and they were showing me this thing that never materials. It was a, it was a fully animated Frankenstein movie. And they showed me all the designs. And I don't know if it was Bernie Wrightson, but it looked like Bernie Wrightson had drawn it. Not, and it wasn't stuff from like his Frankenstein, which is, but it had that look. It never happened. But I, so I was in the animation, even though that, I knew that wasn't anything I'd probably do. Somehow I ended up pitching House of a Thousand Corpses. Really all I had was the title. I thought it sounded cool. And I don't know. <laughs> then I was making a movie. Very weird. In brief, what's the plot of A Thousand Corpses? I mean, House of a Thousand Corpses to me seems exactly like if you took... Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Rocky Horror Picture Show and threw it in a blender and spit out another movie. That's like, because I think with your first movie, at least in my case, maybe in many people's case, you're so impacted by all your influences, you haven't overcome them yet. You're still sorting them out. And I was so in love with both those films, amongst many films, but particularly those films at that time, or, you know, since I was a kid and still at that time, that I wanted sort of, it was always like a war between the two things, trying to make, you know, this sort of gritty backroads redneck movie, which I always loved, not just Chainsaw, but any movie that sort of dealt with that subject matter, and just the so over-the-top Rocky Horror vibe. It was sort of a clash between those two. I mean, I always thought it was a total disaster, the movie. It's only when I go back and look at it and I go, oh, like, I'll remember it being such a disaster, as if no shot is in focus and nothing makes sense at the and then I'll watch it go like, oh, it you know, more or less makes sense. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of patchwork going on there because the movie never really got finished because I got fired by Universal at a certain point, even though they'd spent a fortune on it. So I finished it on my own as like a one-man crew. With, I, was, I was filming. my Wayne Toth, who had done the special effects, was building the sets. I was, you know, writing, directing, and shooting it at the same time. And the actors who I was still friends with, who were like, oh, this movie, I just shot's never coming out, kept coming back to film. We would build sets at, like, Wayne's little shop, and that's why I rounded out the movie so that it made sense. It sounds pretty crazy that basically you're making one kind of movie, which sounded like it was at a certain, you know, pretty low-budget level, which you're doing what yeah. you can. And then they pumped in a bunch of money, right, to then let you do the Dr. Satan stuff. Yeah, that was a crazy... I mean, they gave, I think they gave me more money to shoot the end of the movie than now most people give you to shoot your entire movie. But at the time, when you're new to something, you don't understand that. And I think the people I had working for me didn't either. So we, like that Dr. Satan set was ridiculously huge, filling up an entire soundstage for something so absurd. And um, I had the DP who had shot um, Full Metal Jacket shooting it because he had replaced the other guy. But unfortunately, I was like, oh my God, he worked with Kubrick because he started, he was on Clockwork and everything. He, he wasn't the DP on those. But what I didn't take into account was I didn't have 500 days to shoot this movie, so he was painfully slow. Felt like we could get off one shot every seven hours. But yeah, somehow it all came together. And I think kind of in this in the true spirit of like the what I loved about cult movies, it could only be made in that complete chaos to produce that. If I had been more skilled at the time, I wouldn't have made it like that because I would have known not to do that. 
but I was coming off having directed about 25 or 30 music videos. So you kind of have that mentality, which doesn't apply to features because it's too chaotic and it's all eye candy and it's all rhythmic. And you try to apply that thought process to movies. It's just a big fucking mess. So that's why with Devil's Rejects, I sort of had to reinvent my entire thought process on how to do things. Seems like it was, you know, deliberate return to the kind of nastier 70s style horror. Were you intentionally trying to bring it back? And was that a hard sell at the time? That's just what I loved. So that's what I wanted to do. It wasn't a hard sell because I don't think what I was describing to anyone at Universal even made sense to them. So they weren't like, oh, like I just felt like you're having those meetings where if someone doesn't know what you're referencing, they don't want to admit it. So they just go, oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, so it all kind of snuck through. But once they saw the final movie, I mean, Universal was not in the business of putting out horror movies at that time. They were doing like, you know, the Flintstones movie. They were very like family-ish. That's what they kept talking about. And I don't, I don't know if horror movies were particularly, they definitely weren't dominating mainstream theaters at that point. It was kind of like in a low point. So when that came out, it's like no one knew what to do with it. I took it all personally, like it was just the movie. But then when I look back at the landscape, it was kind of like the landscape didn't know what to do with it either. And then when we screened it, the death of the movie at Universal was we screened it for a test audience in like wherever, Pasadena, wherever the hell you screen things. And the crowd was responding excitedly to all the violence and all the bad stuff, as you would expect. But the head of Universal at the time was shocked by the reaction. Like, there's a long drawn out scene where Otis executes the cop and the whole crowd cheered. And I think that was the death of the movie at Universal when they started cheering for the wrong people. Were they cheering for the wrong people? Because in that movie, the characters, the certainly the most dynamic and best-drawn characters are the Firefly clan. Um, I guess they're cheering for the wrong people, technically. But uh, I like the villains. I always like the villains. I think, and when I grew up watching monster movies, because we didn't call them horror movies. I never heard that term when I was a little kid. We just, oh, monster movies. All we cared about was like Frankenstein, Godzilla, King Kong, the creature. You know, none of the boring, talking heads. We were into the monsters. They were the stars. And that's who we sympathize with or who I sympathize with. So even when I'm creating horrible homicidal maniacs, they're the people I like. And they're the people I want the audience to like, even though that's a, a bit of a stretch, but it works. And my theory on that was always like, as long as they're cool, the audience will let them get away with, well, let them get away with murder because they're cool. Because when you're cool, you can get away with anything. <laughs> Just ask the fawns. What did you want the uh, inside of the Firefly house to look like? I had used set designers. First of all, I'm like, didn't even know what any of the terms meant in a way because I was coming from music videos. And I brought the what would have been the production designer on the music videos and a lot of the people from that, which was a mistake. A lot of the people I eventually fired into the production because they just weren't, you know, they didn't have the skills or they didn't really have the mindset. You know, movies are so scheduled. You don't, you can't fuck around. And if you can't work in that way, you know, you, you can't be there. And a lot of people fell out as time went on. But my, I just wanted everything to be dense and layered. That was always my thing. And the house we used at Universal, the best little whorehouse in Texas house, the house was massive. And we just packed it full of stuff. It was, I mean, the guy, Greg Gibbs, who was our designer at the time, he had a huge crew working it. They literally made everything from scratch. I mean, they spent a fortune. <laughs> but it was great. But it was kind of mental. What was it like shooting at Universal? It was really cool, and it was really a mess. Shooting there, like, 
that like we're making movies, you know, you drive onto the lot, you show the guy your pass and you're at Universal Studios and then you drive to the set and there's the trailers and this and that. And you can eat lunch on the steps of the Munster's house or they set up catering at the Psycho house and all that. The only part that was a little bit of a crazy was they don't shut down the tram ride for anything. So there's some scenes, I swear, in the movie where you can hear the Jaws ride still going because they don't shut anything down. And the Jaws ride and the best little whorehouse are right near each other. So you could hear the fishermen in the rowboat screaming for help when the shark attacked on some of the background tracks. But that's fine. But it's a little bit of a mess. <laughs> Maybe it just adds to the ambience. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was chaos, but it was great. I mean, I loved it. I wish I could, you know, I would love to go back and shoot there. I love the idea of, like, sound stages and back lots and how fake it all is. We're putting this into an episode on Houses of Hell. So what aspects of that house and, of course, the subterranean lair are uh, particularly conjure up that kind of atmosphere? The house itself, there's no way to get around how influenced that movie was from Chainsaw Massacre and the house and that. And the, the, the wall with the skulls on and the chicken bones on the floor and the feathers and everything. Even though I didn't, I didn't do that. Just that type of look was is still so influential to me. But, you know, everything surrounding it, the grounds, the, the cemetery with, like, hundreds of crosses and the subterranean layer, even though that was kind of a wacky idea that was never in the original script. I kind of, like, came up with that after the fact. Because then I, there was a certain point where I thought, like, someone like turning the whole movie into Alice in Wonderland. They go underground, and then it just goes insane, and you don't know. Are they dead? Or are they crazy? Is any of this happening? I don't even know if I know at this point. But, uh yeah, I mean, I love the idea of basically there was, you know, a doorway to hell under the, wasn't technically under the house, but out in the field by the house. Like Fulci's The Beyond or yeah. something? Yeah, that stuff is so cool. <laughs> you could argue that the film features several musical numbers in some ways. It definitely has musical aspects to it. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember the movie. Well, <laughs> I haven't seen the movie in so long. Um, well, you 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 often uh, in your films you juxtapose these kind of brutal violence with kind of cl- all American classic songs too, like "All Remember You" and "Brick House," "Freebird." Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, those songs. Right. Um, yeah, no, I always like it's a combination of several things. Um, I always set my films in the '70s because that's what I think is the only period that matters. You know, that's so I always stick with that. And there's a certain the music from that period is super important to me. And sometimes it'll be a song that's doesn't seem like it would be right for the scene but in my mind they connect in some way like and i don't know why you know sometimes like you know i was in a car accident once and i can still remember the olivia newton john song on the radio so i'll always associate that olivia newton john song with being in a car accident even though certainly not what she was thinking when she wrote it so that's kind of the way that that i put these things together like i remember you the slim whitman song you know and at that time was you know people kind of thought slim Whitman was funny and then he was used to be funny in Mars Attacks, but I never thought he was funny. I, I loved him. I thought he was amazing. And I would never use it to be funny. The brick house thing came about strangely because I'm pretty sure when we shot the scene, I didn't know what song it would be. And at that point, my manager became the manager of Lionel Richie for a brief time, and I just became friends with Lionel Richie. And because of that, I got to use the song. I mean, it gets even weirder. We did the song together on The Tonight Show when I was promoting House of a Thousand Corpses. And that just seems so weird, being on The Tonight Show, talking to Jay Leno about House of a Thousand Corpses with Lionel Richie. I was like, this is, this is 
it's fucking weird. That's <laughs> fucking weird. <laughs> it's kind of like Alice Cooper and Merv Griffin or whatever, right? So. Yeah, and then to make it weird, I got the Wayne came in and we made all the band that I was playing with look like Fulci zombies. So they're in like disco sort of 70s pimp outfits, but they're all spitting up blood and they're all look just like, you know, that poster zombie from that movie. So it's pretty wicked. There's an article that says, by pairing brutality with popular, often beloved tunes from the primarily American past, Zombie exposes the violence that lies embedded in American history and society. Was that your intention, or is that an academic reading into your movies too much? I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I don't know what, I don't know what my intention ever is with anything. You know, there was some book that came on. There was this whole connection between Devil's Rejects and 9-11 they were drawing, and this... I was like, what? You know, but I think sometimes you can't see things yourself either because you're so in it. You know, because I'll hear like Tom Savini talk about and Toby Hooper used to talk about like the effect of Vietnam on what they had done. And I don't know if they were thinking at the time. You look back and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I could see that. So sometimes I I, I don't know. I, I do know there's been incidents in my life and things I've witnessed that are really violent, brutal things that happened, but they happened on a nice sunny day in bright sunshine. And those kind of weirdo images sort of stick with you. And then I try to incorporate that into the movies a lot. The last big fight I saw at a show was uh, I went to see Air. <laughs> Raging, screaming fist fight right next to us. So. Yeah, it's never- weird, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of reuse this moment in Three from Hell, but... When I was a kid, we were like in the backyard playing and we heard this high-pitched screaming and we, you know, it was a bright sunny day, people were mowing lawns and we went out to the street and there was a naked guy running down the street covered in blood who had just been stabbed a bunch of times. And we just were sort of like looking at him like he was on TV, watching him run. Some critics call your aesthetic the white trash aesthetic. Is that a fair label, or do you see where that's coming from? I don't know. I guess it's fair. It doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I think that you make what you know and what you remember. And the people that are in my movies and the way they talk and the way they dress, and the way they, it's just what I remember as a kid. Like, say, my Halloween, the way I made young Michael Myers. That just reminds me of every kid I remember when I was that age. The way he dressed, the way he acted, the way he looked. So it wasn't about like, oh, he's white trash. That just seemed like what I remember. You know, had I grown up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, my sensibility would be completely different. But I didn't, so I don't even pretend that I know what that would be. I do what I remember and base it on people that I know. I mean, I based even characters like Otis on very specific people. They weren't just made up because there was this uh, set of three brothers that went to my school and they were albino and they were like total like rednecks, like, you know, no shirts and overall type thing. And they look like freaking Nosferatu. Like they were just wild because they weren't just albino. They were really crazy looking like they're like almost no hair. Their eyelids, they had wrinkly eyelids, which was very strange and crazy teeth. And, you know, they really looked like Klaus Kinski and Nosferatu. And um, I just always remembered them. It just was freaky. So that's why in the first movie I made Otis sort of like look like that. Then I changed him. Yeah, it looks a little normal. I didn't photograph good in the daylight, so I just changed it. 
<laughs> it looks stupid. <laughs> You've worked with a bunch of people, obviously, Sherry and Bill Mosley. Yeah. First, tell me a little about what's your working relationship and like, why do you come back to the same people? Is it sort of more of a, like a stock company kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I like working. I like everything. I mean, I like working with the same people and I like finding, bringing new people into it with each film. Because every film looks like, oh, it's not all the same people. Maybe these four people are the same, but then these five people are new and it's always like bringing new people in. Sometimes people fall out and I won't make a movie with them for 10 years and then they come back. But I like having a core group of people because it is like a theater company. Even though I was never a theater person, I like that idea because they relate to each other in a different way. And I know they have chemistry and I know they work good and I know that they'll bring something to it. Because almost on every movie, like I'll I'll never say who, but I'll bring in somebody new and they don't fit in. And you you feel like you're just trying to jam the the round peg in the square hole and they they don't want to be part of the group. They want it to be about them and they're happy to try to sabotage someone else's performance because they're about themselves. And you're just like, fuck, man. You know, it's like you just don't have the time or energy to waste on actor bullshit. But like Three from Hell is the best example. I mean, you know, I had Sherry and I had Bill who had done these characters for a long time and almost for 20 years. And I brought in Richard and rather than them being like, oh, well, you know, they were like, they just brought him right in and we had worked with him before so everybody knew him. I mean, I guess Bill had, but you know, there's no ego. Everybody is trying to make everybody else's game better. And that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but that's not always the case. There's a lot of ego wars and people are trying to upstage other people and they're getting pissed if someone else feels like that person's stealing the scene. It's supposed to be my scene. And it's fucking mental when people do that. Like you can't believe what's happening. And they're just destroying everything. And they think somehow... They can control the scene all the way through to the editing room, which is impossible because I can just go, fuck you. Um, so that's why I like people that I, I think are talented. I can trust. They're my friends. They give 100%. They'll do anything for the project. And whenever I can find somebody new that fits in, that's the greatest moment. You know? How'd you find Bill Mosley? How'd you know he was the right guy for that part? Um, the Bill Mosley thing was funny because it was 1999 and I was at Universal Studios and they were having the Igor Awards. I was getting an Igor Award, I guess. Yeah. He was presenting it to me and he was dressed as Chop Top and he was up there hosting the awards as Chop Top. But I didn't know it was Bill who had played Chop Top. I just thought, wow, this guy does an amazing impersonation of Chop Top. That's what I thought all night long until after the award show, we were sort of talking and I realized, oh, oh, it's this guy. It's the actual guy. And, and we just started talking and we got along really well and realized that we lived about three blocks apart from each other. So that when the movie House of a Thousand Corpses started, I thought like, oh, Bill's really cool. I, I always thought that he was the best thing about Chainsaw 2, that he just stole the show in that movie. I thought it was amazing. And I hadn't seen him in a long time do anything of that magnitude, you know, carry a movie in such a fashion. So I thought it'd be perfect. And it took a long time because... We, we sort of had a de-chop top him because he, that was, you know, where he'd kind of go. And I kept sort of like, we, it took a while, but we you know, turned him into this other guy. It seems like he was, he's got a range, though. I mean, he also let Disney play like an anchorman or a weatherman. Yeah. <laughs> he does. That was, that was out of necessity because that's when we were shooting uh, scenes on the fly here and there on the weekends. And we we're, you know, people would come in. Like, I remember that, that was the day uh, we sh- I shot Bill as an anchorman. Then Sid came in to do his little intro commercial. And then I didn't have Irwin to play Ravelli. So my assistant at the time, who was 
chubby and round, just put on the suit and got into the background. It was just, you know, it was definitely Little Rascal's time trying to put on a show. I mean, no one thought the movie would ever get finished or seen, but I just wouldn't give up on it because the best piece of advice I ever got was from one of the one of the many editors in the movie, but this guy Bob Lambert that Universal had hired, and he had just come off of doing Three Kings, all these big movies. And when I got fired and they kicked us out, he said, whatever you do, finish the movie. If you leave it unfinished, it'll just sit on the shelf for the rest of your life. Just finish it. So I did anything I could to finish it. And you got back control of the movie, obviously, even though they fired you. Well, what happened was they, um, yeah, they kicked us off the lot. Not in a mean way, but, you know, they shut us down, kicked us off the lot. And they obviously owned the movie and spent a fortune on it. And they wanted their money back. So we shopped it all around town. Nobody wanted it. For a brief time, MGM wanted it. And then some silly thing I said got taken out of context, and MGM got pissed off, so they dropped the movie. I mean, like this happened like within two seconds. But we did get a little more editing done on MGM's dime. Um, so whatever it took. And then um, it just lingered forever. And what happened was Universal kept dropping the price of how much money they thought they could recoup it for. They're like at first they wanted 100% back. They're like, oh, if we get 75% of our money back, there was 50% of our money. And eventually, once they realized everyone passed the the purchase price of the movie got pretty low, so I bought it, and then I sold it to Lionsgate. Who at one point had passed and then come back, so it all worked out good. It all worked out. <laughs> so then, presumably, you then own your characters, so you're able to make the other films with them. Yeah, at that point, I owned it in conjunction with Lionsgate, obviously, because when they bought the movie, they bought the sequel rights. And then almost yeah, after they put it out, it immediately was profitable for them, so we got into production on Devil's Rejects, ASAP. Rejects, of course, you took a kind of a different approach. Well, I didn't want to make House of a Thousand Corpses 2 and have another set of victims stumbling onto the house and go through all the same beats. And I knew by that point, I had, once you get one movie under your belt, then you're like, okay, you don't know everything, but you know a million times more than what you knew before. So I knew that I was going to have a consistent tone and look and get exactly what was in my head on film, which was not the case with Corpses, but with Rejects, exactly what I wanted I could get. I knew how to explain it. I knew what I wanted. I knew how to find the right people to make it happen. So yeah, I went. For, I wanted a really saturated, bleached out, realistic, blank sort of movie. And I decided to set most of it in the sunlight because Corpses had been almost always at night. Almost every, you know, we shot almost all nights and sometimes in the rain all night. So I thought, this is going to, I'm going to do this in the burning hot sun, just to make it the exact opposite movie. A lot more tortury than the first one. Yeah, I, I tried to get rid of all the humor. I mean, sometimes the characters are humorous, but I wanted them to be it to make sense. But nothing was going to be wacky. There was going to f- no urge to make anything colorful or goofy or too over the top. Kept stripping it down and the look of it and the feel of it. And you know, I wanted when someone was being terrorized that it felt more real and emotional. Like because you know when Bill Mosley terrorizes Priscilla Barnes. It's not fun. It's not fun, goofy violence. It's really, like, mean-spirited and real. And that was the, the tone of the movie. So it's a little more Last House on the Left, basically. Than the yeah, other. or just yeah. anything. Taxi Driver, you know. It, it just real. So you go, this is like a drama. This isn't a horror movie. There's no monsters. There's no this and that. I mean, that's why I jettisoned all the Dr. Satan stuff. I was like, this is just going to be stupid. This would be. I I shot a few scenes with it and just came to the conclusion this is totally stupid. This will look ridiculous. And then the only character I struggled with, which I kept to a, a minimum, was the character of Tiny. 
because I thought, oh, this, this is like the one weird thing, but I thought if I kept him to a minimum, it could play as, as realistic. Why do you think Captain Spaulding became so iconic? I mean, Sid was someone I always had in mind for that role immediately. I didn't know him, but I knew him from his work, obviously, his whole, his whole career from, you know, the movies, he Spider Baby to Jason of Star Command to whatever. And I always thought he was really charismatic and really fun to watch, but I would, you know, never could get enough of him in the movies. He was never, he was never in the movie enough for me. So I thought that guy should be a leading guy, you know? And I had this idea of what I thought he would be like, even though I didn't know what he was like at all. So I wrote the character with him in mind, and um, he was just like I thought he'd be. He was kind of like, you know, that was kind of how he was. Like when I met him the first day, I still remember the first day of meeting him at the Edith Head building at the universe, on the Universal lot when he was trying on clown suits. And, uh, you know, he was just this kind of like fun, big, good-natured guy and fell right into it instantly. I was surprised to see Michael J. Pollard show up in the... I, I love that guy. Michael J. Pollard is like, was always one of my favorite actors. I always hyper-focus on like character actors. Even as a kid, like I'd be watching Bonnie and Clyde, but I'm watching Michael J. Pollard more than Warren Beatty. Like I would just focus in on these guys. I think I first saw him in the Star Trek episode, Miri. That was probably when I first noticed him, but I'd always notice him stuff and Dirty Little Billy and all these movies he was in. I just loved him. He was fun to have around. He was wacky. <laughs> are there people like him and Bill Court today? I mean, are the young equivalents of those kind of actors? Probably. They're just, I'm sure, yes. I'm sure Whatever there once was, there still is. It's just they don't mean anything to me because I can't relive my childhood. And it's weird now because, uh, you know, I've been making movies for about 20 years or so, and everybody was still around when I started. So you could go, oh, let's get Karen Black. And, then, and as time goes on, every time I think of somebody, I'm like, oh, man, I forgot. Someone so passed away. You know, even, like, I always loved Jeffrey Lewis so much. I just thought, I don't know why, everything. Like, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, I was just, like, so into that guy. I just thought he was the most fun person to watch and so casting him in rejects he was just amazing uh you mentioned karen karen black yeah. i want to ask you yeah about working with her and that karen black is great i loved working with her she was really great with sherry too she her those two got along great and it was really it was a good it worked well the funny thing about karen was um sometimes when i would just be talking to her at lunch or somewhere i'd be like i don't know what the fuck she's like it seemed like she was like on mars and then you'd yell action, and she would nail all of her lines perfectly. Like, the most normal I saw her be was when she was acting. <laughs> and then we'd yell cut, and she'd ask me some crazy question. I'd be like, what are you talking about? She's like, I'm not wearing any underwear under this. I'm like, I don't need to know that, Karen. <laughs> and, you know, it's just weird stuff. But she'd be wearing this super short skirt and just, you know, wacky actress stuff. Yeah, her, <laughs> her scenes with Chris Hardwick are particularly funny and excruciating at the same time. She never held back. She gave 100% every take. It's pretty obvious. And, you know, most actor actresses wouldn't go, can I have bad teeth too? <laughs> like, she couldn't wait to have her teeth all bad. She was funny. She was cool. We, we stayed good friends with her for a long time after that. She was always around. Was that Sherry's first film? Or yeah. How did she navigate that and how she's kind of... Her come along since then i don't know how she navigated it because the it, it, i think by it being my first film and her first film the combination of the two of us both having no idea what we we're doing but not realizing how much we didn't know what we were doing like if you know if i knew now what i knew then i would be overwhelmed by what i didn't know and freak out and i think she would too but you know just 
sometimes you just do stuff. <laughs> you just jump in there and do it. I mean, I remember the first shot, the first scene we shot with her was uh, when she walks into the thing called a Red Hot Pussy Lickers. And I had never thought about it the whole time. I was like, okay, now we're going to shoot this scene, blah, blah, blah. And we shot it. And one of the producers just went like, whew, thank God. And I was like, what? He's like, this is going to work. Because though I, I, I had total faith in her, but other people weren't sure. Because, you know, we didn't do screen tests. We didn't do anything. We rehearsed some, but, you know, I cast a, like Chris Hardwick. You know, like, you want to cast your friend who hosts Singled Out? Like, a lot of the casting choices seemed a bit wacky to Universal. Rain Wilson gives another good performance. Yeah, Rain Wilson. Yeah, yeah. He was great. He was somebody, there was two people that came in for auditions that I thought were great. One of them was Rain Wilson. He was just stood out to me, and Walton Goggins was the other one at the time. I miscalled both of them. They went on to do nothing. And he has that really long murder scene, the long, very long shot where he's murdered in super slow motion. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah, that went on forever. Yeah, when we when we would screen that in audiences, everybody thought the film was broken. Because we, you know, I wanted the technocrane to go as high as it could, and we were shooting it. I don't know what frame rate, I don't remember. But it was so long. It was like over a minute of silence, which that's a long time when you're sitting in a theater with people. It does seem like something was wrong. And Universal hated it. They were like, you got to take that out. And it's pretty much the only thing anybody remembers about the movie. Well, it's a very loud movie until, yeah. except for that part. <laughs> that's true. Why do you think the Firefly clan become kind of increasingly popular, perhaps beloved, since uh, the film's release? I think probably because for the same reason that Michael Myers or Freddie or Jason or, or Chucky became popular, because they were interesting villains. You know, because horror had really taken a turn for a while where it was all about the teens in peril. The movie posters were just beautiful pictures of teens in descending order of their the ranking in the credits on every poster. And when you said like, ah, screw all that, let's go with these people, and you put them in the foreground, people latch onto it, you know, and they just kept getting more and more popular. It was not like a quick thing. I mean, the movie has a, had a very long, slow burn, but once it sort of connected, it really did. I remember the first time it was in Wisconsin. It was where it was backstage of some show, and some guy's like, check this out. And he rolled up his pants, and he had his entire leg tattooed with all the characters from House of a Thousand Corpses. And I hadn't seen anyone with anything like that before. Now I've seen it like thousands and thousands of times. It's like, it's crazy. I don't even react anymore. I mean, it's great. I really appreciate that people do it. But I remember the first time that I was like, wow, people are starting to connect to these guys. Three from Hell, so where did you want to take the characters this time? Well, Three from Hell is is kind of a weird one because it was um, the movie I started to make and the movie I made are two very different movies because of what happened with Sid. It was uh, very much the Three from Hell was Bill, Sherry, and Sid, and that was the movie I had written, and that was the movie I was planning on shooting. And, you know, about a year before I started shooting, I got together with everybody and we had lunch and whatever, and everybody seemed like themselves. And, you know, because Bill and Sherry seemed pretty much like themselves in the movie. And at the time, Sid looked the same, you know. And I thought, oh, it's great. You know, it's just everybody seemed basically the same. And over the course of the year of setting up the movie and reproduction and everything, I hadn't seen Sid, but that's not unusual, you know. I hadn't seen Bill either. But then as we got closer to production, you know, Sid kept missing things. He kept missing wardrobe dates that he was supposed to come in and get wardrobe, fit of wardrobe or different things like that. But I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, oh, whatever, we still got plenty of time. 
then I, then he called me one day when I was driving a set. This was maybe like two or three weeks out from the first day of shooting and told me he had been in the hospital. And, um, but he was not in the hospital at that point. He had just gotten out and he was in like a, a rehab facility, like physical therapy facility. So I went down to visit him and, you know, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, he had, he looked like he had been through a lot. And um, he had lost a lot of weight. Like if he he had grown his beard really long for the movie, but I don't think if if he didn't have his beard, I don't even know if I would have recognized him because he was so skinny. He looked like he had lost like all of his weight. I mean, he was so skinny because he's like a big guy. And he was laying, you know, he was he was um, no, he was actually doing his therapy when I went down that time, and they were doing stuff. And I talked to his doctor and talked to Sid, and you know, I was trying to. I was hope hopeful that. He was going to get better because he'd had a surgery. And I thought, well, of course, he's going to be feeling at his worst now. But we were getting close to shooting. So I started changing the script because I thought, you know, even if he's feeling a thousand percent, this is just too much work for him. But then another week went by and me and Sherry and Bill went to visit him in the, in the hospital in a, or the facility. And um, he didn't seem any better. I thought he actually seemed maybe a little worse. But I think I was trying to trick myself because when we left, Sherry was like, you're fucking crazy if you think he can do this movie, you know? It doesn't even seem like he can get out of bed. So that kind of went on and on and on. And then, but I hadn't told Lionsgate because I knew it would be a problem. So we were just hiding the fact that he was really sick. And then eventually uh, our producer, Mike Elliott, was like, we got to tell the studio what's going on. So we told, not a lot, hardly anyone knows this story because we kept it quiet at the time. But um, as soon as Lionsgate heard Sid hadn't been cleared to work because he had to have a physical, and they said, oh, he's too sick, he can't work, they shut the movie down. They shut it down. They go, send everybody home, movie's canceled. It's done. They wouldn't even consider it. And that was on Thursday. But luckily, our producer was smart, and he goes, well, we've paid everybody through Friday. Can they keep working? And they're like, they can keep working, but it's all for nothing. And within that 24-hour period, I rewrote the script coming up with the character that Richard Brake played and changing everything like overnight. Got on the phone the next day with the studio, repitched the entire movie again. And they were like, okay, we'll do that. And after I hung up the phone, um, again, not knowing, being naive, the, the producer was like, that was crazy. He goes, I've never seen that happen, that they would shut down a movie. We repitch them an entirely different movie and they agree to it. I mean, I kept in mind what, because we already built all the sets and stuff. So I kept it, the story basically the same, but coming up with this half-brother and this whole thing. But I knew because of 31 that the, 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 they liked Richard Brake from that movie, so it would be kind of on board with him. But at the, the time I'm pitching all this, I don't even know if Richard's available because he was making another movie. But it all worked out in a crazy fucked-up way. Fucking mental, man. <laughs> no matter what you plan, it all, goes, it all falls apart. It's always like that. Which leads me to The Lords of Salem. Yeah. You took a different path cinematically, you know, visual styles a lot different. It's got yeah. pretty deep themes and all of that. And at the same time, listening to your commentary track, I gather, was no picnic to make. Lords of Salem was very difficult to make, mostly because I had never made a movie with that little money in that fast. I've done it a couple times now, so it's still difficult, but I know how to do it. But with Lords of Salem, it was crazy because it was a whole other storyline that eventually I was like, I got to cut all this out. I don't, I'm out of time. I can't shoot this. So I kind of ended up with this movie where we got into editing. You know, like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. 
<laughs> you know, I can't get from point A to point B in certain scenes. And I, you know, I knew that um, at that time Blumhouse wasn't going to give us any more money. So once again, kind of like with House of a Thousand Corpses, I gathered everybody together. We built five or six totally different sets all in one location. It was like a silent movie where, you know, if you move the camera like one inch, you'd see the next set. And I gathered back, you know, Bruce Davison and Sherry and Jeff and everybody. And I shot all these little connector scenes that made the movie make sense, you know. Well, it doesn't make sense to people now. It really wouldn't before. But um, it, it filled in all the blanks of what wasn't happening. I, it kind of recreated the backstory. And um, yeah, it all worked out. And even when we were making the movie, I remember thinking this is, I don't know what people are going to think of this, because I purposely wanted to do something totally different. And I had to force myself to do it. Where like when we would be, you know, dollying the camera down the hallway, I would actually time it because no matter how slow they did it, it was too fast. And the camera guys thought I was crazy. So I started playing music. I'm like, you have to do it to this, you know? And they would do it. I'm like, do it. They're like, is that good? I go, slow it down, another 50%. Until, it, you know, because my movies are usually high-paced. And I was just trying with myself to make everything. Even with Sherry, I'm like, talk slower, talk quieter. Talk, like, every, every character, let's bring it down, bring it down. So it was, it was a weird experience trying to make something totally different. Well, it's also that kind of rhythm seems to kind of mirror her resurgence of her addictions too yeah. and they're kind of sinking into that kind of drug stupor yeah i mean it made they hit a point where i could feel that i wanted the whole movie to feel like it was a dream so you know like is this really happening is she think this is happening is this just a drug dream is she crazy you know and it started getting that feeling when we were shooting it too like you could just feel when something was working like that which was nice and you know being able to go to salem to shoot not all of it, but a bunch of it made a big difference because we went there finally at the right time of year. It was like November 1st. So, you know, we got a great look, even though it was freezing cold. <laughs> I probably complained about that on commentary. You did. <laughs> it was so cold. The cameras were freezing. The movie seems to pit uh, the witch characters against conservative Christianity. Are you on the witch's side in that one? Oh, yeah, sure. The witches are the heroes in this one again, as usual. <laughs> That's why I created the character of uh, the Torsten plate of the you know the Norwegian black metal guy or German black metal guy ranting against Christianity just to get a little more in there, <laughs> just to complain about it all. All my movies are anti everything, <laughs> white trash anti everything. It's a heroic stance, I think. So. <laughs> Could you tell me the plot of the Lords of Salem? Yeah, I mean, the plot was that as it got whittled down to was that even though none of this happened, obviously, in any shape, way, shape, or form, the Salem witch trials were not this exciting. But I came up with this coven of witches in Salem that were destroyed, or so they thought, by Jonathan Hawthorne, who later become, in, in the process of destroying them, they put a curse on his uh, lineage, and then we jump to modern day where Heidi Hawthorne, who's descended from Jonathan Hawthorne, is the one they decide, this modern day coven of witches, to choose her to be the, the vessel by which, you know, the Antichrist comes back and the witches return. There was a lot more to it than that, but it all got never filmed. So that it kind of got whittled down to that, but that, I think it probably would have been too complicated before. 
one thing I like about it is that it has the courage of its convictions. It ends in a place that's uh, pretty pretty uh, outrageous. So. Yeah, I like the ending a lot because I've always been a big fan of Ken Russell movies and I like crazy shit, like especially like Lair of the White Worm. Because I thought like, well, if, if you have someone who their entire soul is being stripped away because they're being dragged to hell and they're, well, what is that going to look like? You know, so that was what I came up with of what it would look like. What would it look like if you were dragged to hell by witches and forced to give birth to Satan? Squirreling. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that was so funny. Meg Foster loved that thing. She just kept going on and on about how beautiful it was. <laughs> she was the perfect choice for that witch. Yeah, tell me a little about the witches and the casting, in particular of the uh, the witches. A lot of women who are kind of iconic. Yeah, the, there was certain people I always knew I wanted. Patricia Quinn was one of the one for sure, because I just love her voice, and I knew she would just—I knew she could take that dialogue and just run crazy with it. So I always wanted her in the movie. Getting her there was a, tricky. It was like a whole scene, green card scene or something. But I, it was like a, <laughs> flying her to Canada, they'd sneak her across the border. We were doing all kinds of stuff. And then Dee Wallace, I knew I wanted uh, Judy Geeson came later. I remember we, I was trying to find the, the third witch and our casting agent at the time, Judy had come in to read for it and I just thought she was amazing. And then Meg Foster was another one I always wanted. And um, I wasn't sure because I didn't know her. And when she agreed to do it, I'm like, go back and double check that she understands like the nudity and stuff. Because it didn't seem like without knowing her what something she would do because I couldn't remember her ever doing anything like that in a movie. It seemed pretty out there. And she's like, no, 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 she doesn't care. And I got her on the phone and talked to her. And after talking to her for a while, I could tell that she, the, just the way she was, I, I was like, she's perfect. She was telling me some story about hanging out her window naked as a kid and the breeze. And she was like talking like uh, Margaret Morgan, the witch. I was like, she's perfect. The way the witches are portrayed, too, is something you didn't see. The only thing I've seen like it actually recently is uh, The Witch, The End of the Witch, where there's the Witch's Sabbath. So yeah. just, you have a full-on Witch's Sabbath of a kind you have, didn't really see in films very much, right? So if you tell me a little about the look of that. I mean, The Witches, the look of The Witches, the only movie I could really find that had that look was uh, Polanski's Macbeth. I thought The Witches in that had kind of that vibe. I knew I wanted them to be old and this interesting and different and it was hard to find it because like you know it's 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 hard to find people that nudity is something nobody wants to do especially in, in but it, but it's never used in like you know oh i need the witches i'll be smoking hot because you know we're making a witch movie but just trying to find you know older women that are willing to do it and go there when we found them like it kind of becomes infectious and they all really get into it and they really form into this crazy thing which was cool I felt bad for them, though. I'm going to say it again. When we filmed the the coven scene by the fire, I swear to God, it was 10 below zero. It was soaked, and they're all out there naked running around. I don't know how they did it. A couple more questions about Lords of Salem. It features uh, some really interesting slash crazy phantasmagorical scenes in it. What do those add to the films? And why are those, what do those uh, sequences add to horror films in general? Well, for me, that sort of started on Halloween too. I kind of, you know, got into these sort of weird fantasy sequences in that movie because I wanted to sort of get inside the head of Michael Myers rather than just looking at him going like, wow, he's crazy. 
like wanted to sort of like, well, what is he, how does he see things if he's so crazy? And when I started shooting those scenes, it was so fun to just get into these surreal, weird things that that's why Lords of Salem just became, that's all it was in a weird way. And, it, and what I love about movies or what movies used to be is like you do anything. And, it, you know, especially in the 70s, there were less rules of like, well, this is what an audience likes and this is the way they feel it should play. And they should understand this and it should end like this and they should be happy about this. And this guy has to try. And I just love watching stuff and just going like, what the fuck is going on? You know, sometimes I watch a movie... Many times, even if I don't, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I don't even know if I like this, but I got to watch it again. It's because I want to think something different and not quite get it. And so often, like, I'm sure everybody goes, you can watch a movie. You can just, you can almost guess the dialogue. It's so generic. You can guess how it's going to turn out by who they cast. Like, well, I'm going to kill that guy. He's too famous. So it's going to be this guy. This is going to happen. And it's like stuff where you just don't know, you know. And that's why I think I always put bleak endings, too, because as a kid, I was always like, the movies I was most excited about when I was little was Bonnie and Clyde and Taxi Driver. And the endings are so bleak. I think I started thinking, oh, it always has to be bleak. You have to walk out of the theater feeling bad. This is what it's about. There are a few conventional dramas where you can get away with that these days, or at least certainly like mainstream, yeah. mainstream films. So only in horror films nowadays, I think you're allowed to have a really bleak ending. Yeah. It's like, God forbid somebody walk out of the theater thinking about it. I mean, sometimes I see a movie, and even if it's technically good, I go, oh, that was good. Sometimes by the time I got to my car, I forgot what I even watched because it just was so programmed to not bother me. And I think that's why, you know, people like foreign movies so much because they just have such a different feeling. Even if maybe to that country, they're like, it's generic. It's still, it's, it still unfolds in such a different way. That's why with Lords of Salem, I was, I couldn't find anything. There was only a couple of movies I thought had the feeling of what I wanted. It was sort of like, Shining, maybe, Suspiria, but not too many things, you know, where what I loved about both those movies, like Suspiria just feels weird at all times. It's just weird. As soon as she walks out of the airport and the music's going and the wind's blowing way too hard and everything's like psychedelic, you're like, fuck is this crazy movie? It's just so awesome. And then the pace of The Shining, so painfully slow at times. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel slow as a movie as you're watching, but when I'm like, there was a couple of times where I actually sat there and timed some of the scenes and I was like, wow, it took Jack Nicholson two and a half minutes to finally get into that bathroom. It was so slow or something, you know? Oh yeah, when he walks into, yeah. Yeah, it just takes forever. forever. Yeah. But when you're shooting a movie and you're doing that, it feels wrong. Like you really have to, like, that's what I love about Kubrick. That's why he said, and I came to that conclusion a long time ago where like, those, his movies are so brilliant because you're not dictating what he's feeling. He's dictating everything. He's going to dictate your heart rate, your breathing. Like, he's took over. He doesn't care. You know, this is what it feels like to be in space. It's not exciting. It's this or that. It's, I don't know, just the way he does things. And no one else does that. No one else ever did it. Because it's too risky. And even now, it's like if someone made The Shining now, they go, like, it's great. Lose the first hour. You know, or The Exorcist, even. Of course, even Cooper cut 10 minutes off of the end of The Shining, right? So, apparently. I so can't remember. Yeah. That's what they say. But it's the, the scenes he didn't use in Clockwork Orange that I really want to see. But I remember John Carpenter said this thing once. I think someone, I don't know if he said it to me or he said it in an interview. I forget sometimes. But he goes, are there any deleted scenes? He goes, they were deleted for a reason. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest thing I ever heard. 
Lords of Salem actually has a lot of visual references to other films scattered throughout. And why was it important to you or fun to do that? I just, um, mostly I guess it's just in Heidi's apartment in her bedroom with the trip to the moon and some of those. I just thought stylistically it would be interesting and interesting. You know, I like graphic images. I'm trying to think what movie I was watching. There's this movie called Messiah of Evil that has these paintings of people on the wall. I remember at the time I was watching different things. There's some pop art stuff, and I thought, oh, that's so cool. I love big graphics in movies. Yeah, Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. Stardust Memories is a good example of that, yeah, in his apartment. I always thought it was so cool. And, um, you know, the art direction, I, we didn't have a ton of money, so I thought, let's do things that are, are memorable. Everything I did on the movie was completely nuts from the point of view of the time. Like, we only had, like, 20 days. and was shooting every shot completely composed on, you know, this is when you go handheld. You get, this is not when you decide to try to do everything all perfect, but we did. Was it difficult to shoot the thing where the blood starts coming out of the rocket man? Or? Yeah, that was, uh, I remember what, I don't know, Wayne did something. He had like a fire hose with blood behind the painting or something. But with everything, it was like, we got one chance because once we did it, the painting was ruined. But it worked and, um, most things we always get one crack at. <laughs> now, why did the final ritual take place in a movie palace? I just thought it was spectacular looking. You know, it was that's really just um, the reason. You know, sometimes just, I mean, I've done this on many movies that you're just location scouting and you just find something. You know, this spectacular. And nothing's creepier sometimes than a big movie palace that's empty. You know, if you've ever gone, to, like, especially I remember in the day back when I lived in New York going to movies on 42nd Street in the 80s, and you'd be watching Cannibal Holocaust in this incredible movie palace, and there was like five other people, and, you know, two of them were junkies and two of them were prostitutes, but it was just made the movie so much scarier because it didn't, it was surreal watching a movie that way. I swear to God, I used to go to movies on 42nd Street all the time, and every single time I went, every time, a fight would break out and something really violent would happen. And I remember one time, like, we'd go up to see everything, and Mike and I slowly came to a Holocaust. And we finally, me and my friend, it was the same friend we'd always go, when it came out, we're like, wow, nothing happened. And we went into McDonald's, and two guys started fighting, hit some guy, his head hit the wall, he fell, and blood just spread out all, I go, there it was. It was the 42nd Street violence that we thought was going to happen. These things used to happen, I think. It used to seem like all the time. when you. Well, it was like Taxi Driver, even in the early 80s. It was the same vibe. It was so violent and crazy. And I loved it because I was only 18, so I didn't see it as reality, I don't think. I still saw it as like New York City in a movie. Like it seemed like Cinderella Liberty or one of those movies, just the way they portrayed Times Square. And I, I loved it. I mean, I remember going... It was a bike messenger going to work one day, and there was a dead body on the street, and they just put the sheet over it, but the arm was frozen up like that because it was wintertime. I just thought it was amazing. It didn't bother me at all. Oh, well. Kids today, though. Kids today and their live bodies. (laughs) (laughs) And their multiplexes and their 3D. (laughs) That was the real Frozen. In one sense, Lords of Salem is a movie about depression, drug abuse, drug addiction. Did this film give you a place, like, to, is it a unique space to be able to explore those kind of themes in a way that maybe people haven't seen before? It was a unique opportunity because what had happened is, like, after making the two Halloween movies for Dimension, they were very, what's the word, controlling, maybe, or meddlesome, always, always. 
so you 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 get like so fucked up when you're making the movies because you're like you're always being bothered. Your phone rings all day long on set. You get thousands of notes. It's always a negative energy. It's never like, oh, this is good, but maybe that is like everything sucks. We hate everything about this movie. Everything is like nonstop, you know, being bombarded by the Weinstein's about how much they hate everything you're doing. So when I did Lords of Salem, Blumhouse at that time had was new and they had done Insidious, but not much else. And their model at the time was like, do whatever you want. As long as you bring it in a budget, you can do anything. We don't even we won't even give you one note. We won't say anything. So that's what I did. Because I think I could only make that movie under the circumstances of someone's not gonna meddle at all. And they didn't. I mean, I don't think they liked the movie either, but they didn't meddle. <laughs> well the movie <laughs> Well, the movie's very, you know, I mean, it really was refreshing. It's refreshing watching it just because it is so idiosyncratic. It's a weird one because here, it seemed like my typical fans out of the gate didn't like it. And that was the first movie where I started getting really strong feedback in other countries, which was weird. Like, in all through Europe, people were like, that was the movie that people that started getting me noticed, strangely. Maybe it just feels European. No, it makes sense. Yeah. Actually, it's also it's also kind of like uh, you know the film Houseu, you know, the yeah, batshit crazy yeah, uh, yeah. Japanese that movie. Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Which apparently was all about the atomic bomb. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Let's move on to classic movies, starting with Dr. X. Yeah, I was watching rewatching that this morning because I hadn't seen it in so long. I always get it confused with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Doesn't it seem like almost the same movie? I don't know if it's just because of Fay Ray or Micro Curtis, whatever, but uh, I love it. I love those, like, I don't know if that's what the budget of that movie was, but it feels like a Poverty Row movie, like Bowery at Midnight or something. It has that vibe. I, I dig it. I like movies that are very stagey. Feels almost like a stage play. Totally, it's a crazy movie because it's got this very broad style of comedy. But then it's like got some genuine horrific stuff in it. Yeah, the broad comedy back then always reads like a bad studio note, and you see it in a lot of things: Murders in the Rue Morgue or whatever mystery wax. It's like ugh. the Ted Healy murders uh, in um, Mystery of the Wax Museum. Just what is this? Go what? We don't need this awful comedy. Just you know, pick a lane and stick with it, man. I'm not a big fan of comedy with horror. I like dark. It feels like kind of a forgotten movie in a way. And even the prints you can find of it are so terrible. Well, it had the weird two, two colors, two strip color process yeah, too. So. Which I kind of like. Yeah. It looks nuts. Because everything's green. <laughs> yeah. It looks like someone tried to colorize it, but they only had two colors <laughs> red and green. Yeah, it's a Christmas movie. But it makes it all, it makes it really weird better know although this also i think you could argue the old dark house was not incredibly well known although recently there's a nice blu-ray and put out of it and looks great and i think people are watching it again how did that influence the genre old dark house i always loved i actually put a clip of it in house of a thousand corpses because i just thought like it's just I, i love putting clips from old movies in movies and they sort of reflect what's going on in my movie 
I find that happens sometimes in real life. You'll be doing something and somebody on TV said, the person just said the same thing I just said. It seems weird sometimes. So I, I love doing that. But yeah, Old Dark House, um, I don't know. I don't, I, I really can't say how those, how those influence movies to me, like the James Whale movies just stand so far above the other movies at the time. Just They're so rich in atmosphere and character and the casting is so odd and interesting. But the other movies around him weren't as much. I don't know. He just, what is, you know, the four horror films, not so much Showboat, but, you know, his four horror films are just, they're just so spectacular. And quickly after that, that whole vibe, you know, even though I love Son of Frankenstein, it had none of that feeling. He just started feeling conservative. People also say, oh, well, there's a downturn in horror in the mid-30s. It's like, no, there was the production code. Horror was big, and they just cut it off at the knees. And you can feel it instantly. Because it's not just those ones. But like, we're, you know, Murders in the Room Morgue, any white zombie, anything from that time period, there's such a darkness to it. and such a, There's such a sinisterness. Black Cat is another one with it. Just so... And then it's just gone. It just feels like a bunch of bunch of guys in suits talking like this. You know, and there's always like a reporter meddling in this guy. You're like, what is this shit? <laughs> you know? And of course, the same thing happened with the sexuality that you'd see in all those pictures. Well, yeah, once that went away, they, the movies felt so stiff. Yeah. Because it was always like, there was always like a real, I didn't realize any of this, obviously, when I was a kid. But, you know, there was, yeah, there was like that really horrific animalistic thing with the sexual thing that just made those movies just electric and when you suck that out of it they seem so dry and plotting sometimes like the monsters are still cool like creature from the black lagoon is an incredibly love the suit and it's great monster but those movies feel so dry at times when you're watching them like one when you take the creature out, you just feel like you watch what am i watching a soap opera they don't have any of that feeling that was once there you know the two strapping men competing for the woman in the bathing suit right. and yes. the guys all start looking alike after a while you know, like there was no Colin Clive and, and Dwight Fry. These, these characters were so different. Then it just seems like you get through, all the men start looking the same. And I don't know. They just, you just lost it. Like, but a lot of it was the actors, too. I mean, if you think like, I always say that like Karloff and Lugosi, especially sometimes they just seem like Brando. When you watch Dracula, I feel like there's Lugosi and everyone else. He's doing this whole other type of acting that's just completely always fascinating. Whereas, like, you know, you know, David Manners or whatever is like so actory. Same with, you know, Carl. I guess that's why we still talk about them because they were just special. They were just doing something special when everybody else was acting. They were like really taking these characters and making them well, iconic. Peter Lorre, though, he wasn't really in these kind of films as much, but uh, he's very. Mad Love, though. Mad Love. He did it in Mad Love. He's phenomenal. And that's Demented. <laughs> He's so good as Dr. Gogol in that. He's so good. Yeah, Mad Love, I'd argue, is also a body horror movie. Partly, you know, kind for, of, yeah. Yeah. Especially when he comes in, he's wearing that weird neck thing, and he's like, weird, man. <laughs> That's, yeah, that is an insane, a truly demented costume. Yeah, the, that time period for movies, I always try to think, what was the audience thinking? Because so much of that stuff was happening for the first time, and it must have seemed so sadistic. And so, like, how we felt watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time or Night of the Living Dead. Like, so, like, whoa. Or Cannibal Holocaust. That's what it must have felt like at the time. Because, like, when Frankenstein's monster kills Fritz, it's so, like, him screaming and the way it's echoing on the soundstage, it sounds so crazy. People must have been horrified. 
probably why they clamped down on it so hard. Yeah, probably. What was great about it is what went away. Along the same time period, uh, Freaks. Oh, yeah. I love Freaks. I love Todd Browning. He, he did so much great stuff. I'm trying to think of the first time I saw Freaks. Because it was hard to see at one point, which is hard to believe. It was very hard to see, yeah. I saw like some really ghosted out print they showed late night, and I must have been in some package and uh, never saw it again for 20 years or something after I was a yeah. kid. I think in a weird way, for me, the, the fact that we used to have to watch all these movies on bad prints added to them. And I think that's a lot of people feel that way because it made the movies seem like you weren't, like some seem like snuff films or something because the quality. Obviously, the quality of the films was phenomenal, but what we got to see was so bad, it made them seem even more real. And then, speaking of freaks, where they're using actual freaks, I mean, it's really weird with the pinheads and the legless, uh, almost armless guy. <laughs> it's awesome. Did you say the film has influenced popular culture? Well, I think what's probably even influenced it, that it influenced the Ramones, and the Ramones, you know, brought the chant to the masses. <laughs> the one of us chance so yeah i guess so and diane arbus i guess too is her photography was inspired by the film apparently yeah it's funny a lot of these movies like we talk about them and they're so influential to us and then you mention it to the average person like i don't know what you're talking about who's todd browning (laughs) so i'm like i don't know if it's influential to the masses I don't know what it is. Oh, I don't know yet. I don't know about the masses. I'm like <laughs> concerned about the people who actually care about yeah. this stuff. <laughs> the masses are, yeah, worried about The Bachelor. So when we were talking about character actors, I was thinking of Riverdale. It's a show my daughter watches. Everyone in Riverdale is beautiful. Oh, yes, of course. Gorgeous. So, and Archie they, and Jughead were known as for their beauty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For Archie's, yeah, rippling abs and Jughead's serious haunted expressions. I <laughs> This is totally off topic, but yeah, I remember when I was making Halloween, the, one of the main notes I got was, make sure everyone's smoking hot. I never forgot that, the word, exact words. Smoking hot, not just hot. I've gotten that note while trying to make a history documentary. <laughs> I know you like Carpenter, but I also know that you like the Christian Nyby Howard Hawks. Yeah, I love that version. Yeah, I, I obviously saw that one first, and I remember the first time I saw it because um, it was on TV, and I didn't know much about it because at that point, this was you know pre VHS, so you just sort of see pictures in books. And I remember there was like one picture of the, of the creature, and I was like, well, it's kind of goofy. How could this movie be good? And then I watched, it, I was like, holy shit, this movie's awesome. <laughs> And um, yeah, I, I love it because I love movies with isolation when characters are isolated in, in, in a place, be it a shopping mall or a, you know, a station in the Antarctica or wherever they are. Because it just becomes, it's, it starts becoming so freaky. And that movie's just, it's hard to watch sometimes because it's like, go make us coffee, woman. Like it's so sexist at times. It's like, uh, it's painful. But yeah, I love that movie. And, the, and you know, James Arness as the creature is scary. You know, it, it is freaky when he comes through that door. I use that clip in uh, Halloween. I've used a lot of these clips and things just because I love them so much. 
But um, yeah, it's, that's phenomenal. And I love the Carpenter remake because he did that thing that's so great is when you take something and you make it so different, make it so your own. But it's, it still is the spirit of the original, but it's so different. And I, I remember being at like some World Comic Con sci-fi comic-con right before the thing came out and getting some like 11 by 14 posters that folded open and it was that you know the one sheet image and i was like, i don't know what to make of it it was so cool and you know obviously that that became the, the birth of all the effects i guess every effects guy i know that's like their holy grail at howling american werewolf in london the golden age changed a generation <laughs> <laughs> what'd you think of the godzilla movies were they were part of your childhood I loved Godzilla. Where I lived, they always had the creature double feature every weekend. And it was usually, you know, there was so many Godzilla movies. It was usually Godzilla weekend. But me and my brother went to see Godzilla versus the smog monster at the theater when it came out. The earth is being poisoned by pollution. And we were so into it. Totally bought into it. But yeah, I love Godzilla. I still do. I wish the movies now were still a guy in a suit. I think it'd be better. There's something about the Godzilla movies I love that it's real like it's physically real like it actually is a guy stepping on little houses and tanks and even though it doesn't look real there's something about it actually existing in three-dimensional space as to why i think we bought into it so hard as kids because when the new ones are so spectacular but they never seem like it's happening they never seem real for some reason i mean i guess it's like all digital effects since they can do anything they do do everything they do everything, and yet everything looks the same. Why is that? Because computers are all the same. You know, they're not sculptors. They're not artists. And I mean, what they do is amazing. But there's something about even like when I saw like the new Star Wars, it's like fighting on the Death Star in the water. It's so spectacular. But I'm still like, hey, it's Chewbacca. <laughs> it's a guy in a fursuit. You know, there's something about it actually being there that is like what's exciting to me. But, uh, you know, that's my thought process. So much of this is how you grow up and how it formed us that I don't know if anyone else feels that way that's younger. I know we all feel this way because yeah. we just sit around and moan about it. But <laughs> What place in your life does Dawn of the Dead hold? Dawn of the Dead is probably the movie I've seen the most in my life. I remember the first time I saw it so clearly, it was, I never experienced a movie like that or an audience responding like that. It was um, playing at a midnight showing. This is probably, it wasn't in its first run, but it was close. So it could be 79, 80. I mean, the movie, you know, was still sort of regionally happening. And it was playing at midnight. I went to see it and... The crowd in the theater, it was like being a rock concert. It was the loudest audience. Like, as soon as the SWAT team raids the tenement building, they shoot, that guy's head explodes. It was just insanity from here on out. But I was so sucked in, because I remember at that moment, I was on a date, because I was in high school, and the girl I was with was like, let's go. I'm like, I am not moving. She left. I stayed. Um, I was like, there's no way. If, if, if we're, you're making me Sophie's choice between you and Dawn of the Dead, sorry, Dawn of the Dead won. And just, yeah, I just, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And again, it, it was kind of like um, the thing, the isolation in the mall. But really, I love the characters so much and was so there with them that I felt like 
Uh, when I watched The Shining, I felt like I was in that hotel the whole time. And um, yeah, I loved it so much that like, that's why I use Ken Foray so many times in movies. And it was like, he was on my list of people I have to work with. Gotta get this guy. Because I just loved him so much in that movie. Yeah, I, I think I've probably, I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. I used to watch it. I had it, when I finally got it on VHS, I would watch it every single day. It went on for years. I would watch it every day. Till I was like, it was like I wasn't even seeing it anymore. I, you know, yeah. It's playing in a constant loop. Yeah, I just it just always put me in a good mood, so I'd always put it on. King Kong. Is it true that that's the first movie you ever saw? I think King Kong is the first movie I ever saw. I don't know. I don't know how old I was. I, I mean, I think it was the first time I ever saw a movie projected. Probably saw something on TV, but I must have been kindergarten or younger. And my parents took me to the local public library. And I remember it was rain, it was dark, rainy day. And down in the basement, they were projecting King Kong. Like somebody had like whatever, 35 millimeter print or 16 or whatever it would have been. And I um, didn't even know what to, I could even, my brain exploded. Just even seeing it that big. It just, I, I, I don't even know if I thought it was fake. I think I thought it was real. You know, I remember thinking back to certain movies as a kid, like Willy Wonka, first time I saw it, I think I thought it was real. That it wasn't actually, I didn't think I was so young that I didn't understand that it wasn't real yet. And that was like King Kong. That became an obsession forever. Everything was gorillas. But that's calmed down now. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) I'm okay now. What did you think of the various versions there have been since then? Nothing ever captured the spirit of it. And I think, again, what I liked about the original King Kong is it had that pre-code vibe that we talked about. It was something dark about it the black and white just makes it otherworldly it's pretty humorless and it's the weird sexual edge of it with the you know pong and you know and darrow and fey ray and the whole thing it was just none of the other movies ever came near it the other movies have cool parts and this and that and you know there's great people in them i love jeff bridges and jessica lang and there was cool stuff but there's something about it there was just the movie almost looks like it's a painting come to life everything else starts looking real like oh gorilla people but those movies have a, it's a weird, surreal quality with the miniatures mixed into the people and the line. I don't know. It's indescribable. There's something, and maybe that's the thing about digital effect that limits it in this strange way, is that the, the effort to make everything hyper-realistic yeah. is kind of antithetical to what movies are originally about. In a weird way, yeah, like, what is it, Kong on Skull Island, is that the newest one? Yeah. Like, I watched it, and I thought, these fight scenes, when he's fighting, are so spectacular, but I feel like I don't care that I'm watching at the same time. Like, it's weird. I, I can't quite get my head around why I feel that way. Because I'm watching, I'm like, this is incredible. Like, it looks incredible, but I think it just looks so incredible that it's kind of like sometimes you see an old black and white photo that's out of focus, and there's just something about it, and then you see someone's, here's the photo I took with my iPhone 11, and you're like, who gives a crap? So what? It's more in focus than my eyes can even see. It doesn't mean anything to me. You know, it's like this is making every, the total perfection of everything. It just takes the soul out of the movie. It's hard to explain why or how, but it seems to in some weird way. And I feel that a lot of it has to do with the actors become secondary too. Because, you know, when you're shooting in a real place, the actors can move about the space and interact and be like, oh, I'm going to stand over here and pick up this thing and move that. But when it's just a green screen, I can feel it. Sometimes the actors feel lost to me because they weren't trained to act that way. 
it's like you're not trained to direct that way. It's like and I, you feel like there's something where sometimes you see amazing actors not be amazing anymore because they're on a green screen and they're like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm staring at a tennis ball at a stick, you know? And I've talked to a lot of actors that have made those movies and they say that. that sometimes the director will be like, well, they're like, well, what am I looking at? And they're like, we're not sure yet. Like, oh, okay. Well, how am I supposed to react to you not knowing what I'm reacting to? And they and they look lost sometimes. I feel. They say Whereas, just just think about your paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> but that's why when you watch something like Kong, you go, Kong's giving me the best performance because everybody else looks a little confused. I don't know. It's not the actor's fault. I think it's just the nature of the beast. You're acting, asking them to do something that isn't really what they're doing. Could you tell me about seeing Cannibal Holocaust for the first time? Yes, that I remember clearly. I was living in Manhattan. It was early 80s, 83 maybe. I was working as a bike messenger. I was riding through Times Square and there were Cannibal Holocaust posters plastered on the walls. And I remember stealing one off the wall, except it was this thick because it was plastered over a thousand other posters. And um, it looked like the poster had been cut together by a maniac because it's just like someone went like this and you know, it's like so primitive. And then someone had scribbled out certain parts of the magic marker and pasted other things because, I don't know, I guess it was nudity on the poster. And I was like, this doesn't even, I, I, I'd never heard of it or seen it. And um, I went to see it and I just couldn't believe what I was watching. I still can't believe what I'm watching when I watch that movie. But at that time, I had never seen anything that was remotely like that. Because Chainsaw Massacre, as gritty and gnarly and as intense as it is, so much of it's implied that when you actually see it all happening, it's mental. <laughs> it's, yeah. I hate watching the, the, you know, the one, the killing the turtle and stuff. That stuff's just... I was say, does the inclusion of the animal violence make the movie that much more uh, horrific to watch? It, I mean, the animal violence definitely makes the movie horrific to watch because it seems like the whole movie's crossing a line, but you're not even sure where. I mean, it's crossed the line with the animals, but then with the people, you start wondering the same thing because, you know, what they're putting the actors through is horrible and what's going on is horrible, it, but it's such a unique movie. I don't know if it's a movie you'd call enjoyable, but uh, I certainly was obsessed with it for a long time. I think the thing that redeems the movie in many ways is the soundtrack. The soundtrack is pretty incredible. And it is, the story of the movie is unique too. I mean, it is kind of the, the original found footage movie, I guess, in a way. But the, yeah, that, that weird soundtrack, it's just so weird. Everything about it's weird. And I saw it again, like on 42nd Street in a disgusting situation that just made it, I don't know what, you know, it didn't even seem real. You know, some guy's playing his radio in the theater, another guy's fighting, there's people having sex, I'm watching, trying to watch Cannibal Holocaust. It was crazy. Who's having sex while watching Cannibal Holocaust? Well, it's 42nd Street, so it's really where the prostitutes are taking their customers. Nobody's in there to watch Cannibal Holocaust. They're just like, you know, they can just stay in there all day. You'd think if they looked up, though, it would kind of kill the mood. You would think. What are your thoughts on Evil Dead, or Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, for that matter? Evil Dead was always my favorite. I remember clearly when I saw that, too. I mean, these movies are so um, such milestones in my film going because I can remember exactly. It's like all these movies are like the Kennedy assassination for me. I remember everything about it. Evil Dead, I remember walking past 8th Street Playhouse on 8th Street in Manhattan. There was the poster for it. I never heard of it because it was most of the time it's like, how would you hear about anything? You know, maybe you saw it in Fangoria. Maybe you didn't. And I was like, what the? 
F went and watched it, and again, it was just like, this. it was just insane. I, it's incredible. And, you know, and it's, it's low budget and it's weird, but it all added to it. But you could tell the director was, you know, was such a unique point of view right from the moment the camera's zooming through the woods, which now is like a cliche, but I don't remember ever seeing anything like that before at the time. Bruce Campbell was just so interesting before you got to know him so much that, you know, oh, he's doing, he's Bruce Campbell. You're just like, who are these people? And, you know, you don't recognize anyone, which makes it even scarier. And I loved it. Just the electricity of it and the camera work in particular, just that frenetic feeling that he brought to it. And the first one is legitimately like creepy. Yeah, scary. it really is. I mean, the second one gets goofy. It kind of reminded me, I think it must have come out around the time of Chainsaw Massacre 2-ish. Because I remember going to see one and I was like, when did, why is Chainsaw 2 goofy? Then I went to see Evil Dead and I was like, why is Evil Dead goofy? What's go is it me? Am I just not getting it? Because it seemed like there was a shift where things got a little more like, like wacky. But, you know, the originals weren't like that at all. But I think also, too, you know, you could just sense you were seeing the beginning of something new, even if I, I didn't think of it that way. But, you know, the, the, the talent of Sam Raimi was just, you know, whenever you've, when a new director comes on the scene and they have such a unique point of view, you can just tell. Even though it's not honed and it's not professional yet, it's still rough. You just know it's there. And it's like you're just seeing this point of view that you've never seen before in a way that you've never seen it. And then people rip it off and it becomes like beat to death. But when it's fresh, it just, just blows you away. Now, you've been able to make films partly because you're in the horror genre, but at the same time, you obviously like all kinds of films. Yeah. So would you like to make something outside of this? Like, is there a comedy you're dying to make or a musical? I l no, I don't really like musicals, truthfully. Most of them drive me up the wall. I tried watching Showboat because it was James Whale. I couldn't get through it. Do you like The Wicker Man? I think Wicker Man is like one of the most perfectly made films ever. It's so amazing. I just watched it the other day because again because I thought we were going to talk about it, and I was even more impressed with it every time I see it. It's just everything about it's right. And you know, you watch a movie and you go, "Wow, there's no false moves in this movie. This it looks beautiful. It's really well put together. It's it, and the, one of the big things with The Wicker Man that I love is." The tone is so perfectly held together through the whole movie. And that's really difficult to do. I mean, that's one of the most difficult things to do as a director is keep the tone right. Because, you know, you can be watching movies perfect, then you see a scene, you go, oh, I don't know about But Wicker Man is always spot on. And now, as time goes on, the casting just becomes so much more important with Christopher Lee and Ingrid Pitt and Britt Eklund and all, you know, it's just like, this. it's just, it's so good. And the art direction's great. I mean, it's, Everything about it's perfect. Like I said, I hadn't seen it in a couple of years and I watched it again just yesterday and I was blown away again by how, what a perfect movie it is. I'm surprised it's not talked about. I mean, I, I know it's always highly regarded, but it's not like talked about as much as you would think. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, the thing I love about it is that it, it doesn't have a shot after the sacrifice. It doesn't go and show like that the crops came up six months later right. or whatever. It just leaves it there with this religious divide. Yeah, and just the music. Like, I love the music because it's so weird and it gives it the time to let it go. And when they're all like doing that weird dance at the end, Christopher Lee in that crazy wig and yeah, it's wild, man. It's so unique too. I mean, no other movie like it that I can think of. And that was hardworking man Rob Zombie. Next time, Ken Foray. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. 
History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. Cut.